On today's podcast, we welcome back a veteran of the Medics Money podcast who was last on way back in episode seven, where we talked about FIRE, that is financial independence, retire early. And we are very much into financial independence and possibly even retiring early. Uh, on the previous FIRE podcast, we did talk a little bit about burnout, but not completely. And what was said was so useful to me, just some useful tips and tricks. And I know that it will be useful to you. So today we talk about burnout. And the reason we're talking about that is because of a recent survey of doctors, which I was really shocked to hear the results of. And we talk about that in detail. But we also go through some really nice tips that can help you to survive in what is an incredibly stressful job that you have as a doctor, dentist, or other healthcare professional. So I hope that this helps you. And whilst it's not strictly about money, we of course talk about money and we also get the top tips for how to work towards fire. As ever, please keep rating, reviewing, and subscribing to this podcast. And if you're finding it useful, tell your friends. The other thing to say is that, of course, the Medics Money podcast is for information only and does not represent any form of financial advice. And the views here reflect the reviews of the individuals and not of Medics Money. And we always say that last bit when we talk about something a bit controversial, but I think there are a few key issues here that we need to talk about. Hopefully you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's Medics Money podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by another veteran of the Medics Money podcast from the early days, Dr. Emma Thurston. Hi, Emma. Hi, Tom. How are you? I am really good. Thank you. Now, it's been a while since you were on the podcast, way back in episode seven and eight, when we talked uh, about fire, because I wrote an article about fire. And uh, in case you haven't guessed, uh, listeners, I am all in on fire, uh, or at least FI not completely sure I want to retire early yet, but uh, give it a couple of years and I'm sure that will change. And Emma also wrote in and said that she was into fire as well. But Emma has also got lots of other interesting things on the go. So do you want to just remind the Medics Money podcast listeners about yourself and what you've been up to? Yeah, sure. So I'm Emma. I'm a GP registrar in Christchurch in Dorset. And I do that less than full time and I have a few other interests. So I'm also the regional director of the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine and certified lifestyle physician, also a registered yoga teacher and breath coach. And I have my own business doing sleep and stress management coaching and some yoga teaching. Yeah, excellent. And we'll drop the links to that in the show notes below. But I wanted to get Emma on today to talk about uh, something which came into my emails recently, which is the Medscape Doctors and Burnout Lifestyle Survey. So, Emma, do you want to just tell us, because this is probably one of the most depressing surveys I've ever <laughs> read, uh, but do you want to just give us a, should we summarize what it shows? Because Yeah, yeah I know when you sent it to me being like, yeah, shall we chat about that? I was like, yeah, that was not a fun read, but I think it's really important to talk about it because... It is evidently very sort of widespread burnout in the helping professionals in the NHS. And 
it's not something that we often talk about. I think it's definitely in the pandemic, it's been talked about a lot more, which is great and raising awareness and sorting out some sort of resources for medics, which I think is really great. But actually, there's obviously an underlying issue there if such a great proportion of medics are suffering from burnout. So, yeah, so it shows that um, it, it was quite interesting because I thought the article was sort of split up. So it was in generations as well, which was quite an interesting insight into proportions of burnout. But for those who did the survey, which obviously is sort of a select proportion, if you're choosing to do a survey in burnout, you might be something you're more interested in. But they said 41% of millennial um, medics, 42 Gen Xs and 30% of boomers were burnt out, which, you know, is between a third and a half of all medics are burnout, which is quite, um, quite sad, really. And the sort of biggest impacts of why they said they were burnt out was a lack of respect with 41% of people who were burnt out saying that was a contributing factor. Um, 39% saying too much bureaucracy and then 38% saying too long hours and those I won't go into all of them but those three were like sort of the key points that was highlighted in the survey is you know why people are really struggling yeah and um, two things that stood out to me is the proportion you know 41% of millennials uh, I'm just a millennial uh, <laughs> um, by about a year uh, are burnt out uh, only I mean only 30% of boomers I'm not going to say that's a good thing um, only 30% burnt yeah. out but uh, yeah like the reasons for burnout lack of respect from administrators number one yeah. number two too many bureaucratic tasks uh, number three spending too many hours at work I mean for me, uh, interestingly, down number six was mm -hmm. insufficient pay with only 24% saying insufficient pay was a reason. So those top three reasons, a lot of those are quite fixable, you would think. Mm, yeah, you would or you would hope. And I think, um, yeah, it it is, I think, if, like I was saying, there's, there's some um, individual things we can all do to try and support our own well-being, but unless... The, there's some sort of organisational shift in culture, um, you're giving a psychological approach to an organisational problem and therefore there is a mismatch with what we're being advised to do to support ourselves and actually the root, underlying root cause. Because if you look at um, burnout, which is now in the ICD-10, it is an organisational phenomenon. So it is related to work and not something that's inherently um, an issue with the person themselves. It's the situation they're in that is causing that um, problem and distress. I love that. Uh, I loved what you just said. Like you're right. It's not. It's not an individual problem. If you're burnt out, this is not your individual problem. Mm. It's an organisational problem. And and the one thing that I'm getting from this survey is that, you know, 41%. The most common reason for people being burnt out was lack of respect from administrators, employers, colleagues, or staff. Mm -hmm. That is so fixable. But drilling down into that a bit, I mean, what do you think? our colleagues mean when they say lack of respect from admin stuff, employers and colleagues mm. and stuff? And I, I thought it was also interesting that there was the lack of the respect there, but also lower down. So it was, but it was about, I think, 20-ish percent um, that they were sort of lack of respect from patients as well. And I think, although that's definitely lower, um, it, if you're feeling lack of respect from one side, you're probably a bit more vulnerable to feeling that when you experience it for somewhere else. And it's just feeling not supported in lots of different ways. And I think, um, yeah, so what I would say would be the number one approach from an organisational culture shift to try and make people feel less burnt out is just being valued as a human being and not a resource. And I think 
there's lots of issues with that in um, in the NHS. I think if you talk to anyone who's suffered with burnout and is trying to come back, I do think that lack of being treated as a human is one of the most significant things. And there are simple they're simple approaches, but not easy. <laughs> simple things being actually having enough people on the rotor. So therefore you're not coming in. I remember being when I was working in hospitals, coming in not infrequently. And it's literally there's you're in handover. There's a group of doctors and it's literally who's going to come go home now and come in for the night shift the rest of the week. And that just does not make you feel valued as a person. I think um, for me, nights were awful and I had to sort of psychologically prepare myself, you know, go out, get food, meal prep and actually and, and sort of, you know, make sure you've had time around to see your family and your partners around them because you know you're going to be a recluse for the next few weeks. And I think oh, like a few days. And I think actually understanding that it's not just you're a bum on a seat you're not a cog in a wheel you're not a rotor gap you are an actual person with feelings and asking someone to do that is just one example of what I think is actually just wrong and they should just get a locum in or they should have enough doctors in and that is an underlying problem that is simple but not easy to solve and I think I read this article in BBC recently when they were saying that the fund and it ultimately comes back to the funding and the government funding that it's being funded by just allocation and debates rather than actually the need. And there's so much out. And I think the one, number one thing that people said in this survey would reduce burnout would be reduced patient workloads. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting. I've got lots of friends who are not doctors and work mm -hmm. in other industries. And I think it's interesting to compare the working conditions in the NHS to other industries. So my mate is a pilot, right? Mm -hmm. And if his co-pilot doesn't turn up, yeah, he doesn't just go okay i'm gonna fly the plane and co-pilot the plane um <laughs> and, you know and be yeah, yeah. you know yeah they, they just don't take off right whereas if you turn up for a night shift and the other person isn't there uh the administrators hasn't found a locum they're like oh guess what here's two bleeps and yeah. you're like okay so i'm flying the plane and i'm co-piloting the plane <laughs> and i'm like looking after the passengers in the back so that's three like two or three bleeps yeah. and we just accept it whereas I think we need to be more more like pilots and say, right, we we the, the rotor says we have a pilot and a co-pilot. If the co-pilot doesn't turn up, I'm not taking off. Like, go yeah. and fi go find another co-pilot or the flight's not going. I think, but yeah, the number of times I saw med regs, which, you know, if anyone's working in hospitals, they're probably the busiest person at night, holding, like, two med regs bleeps. And you're like, that is just, it's not safe, ultimately. And actually, it's not fair on the, on the doctor either. And I think I totally agree with, that and I think one of the things at an individual level we can do and if we all do it enough it will change culture is set those boundaries in place and actually say this is you know I am a human being this is um not safe and actually set the boundary and say you know I can't come in for a night shift tonight that's just not possible and actually it's not in my contractual obligation to do it um and it's individual how far you go so I've and I know you have as well, set our boundaries in that we've become less than full time to protect ourselves. Well, that's one of the reasons why I did. I can't speak for you. But actually, um, I think that's probably the best boundary I have set for my own mental well-being, you know, ever, I think. And actually, it again comes to being valued as a person. You can just sort of take that less than full time and have the rest of the days off to relax and recover. That's absolutely your choice. But you could also do that to explore and pursue other interests. And that can be within the NHS or not. Um, and actually, if you're pursuing other interests within the NHS, um, you, you can be supporting the organisation in a different way. So actually, it's not they've lost something. And I think 
one of the great things that I've you know seen more and more come into is sort of um, the clinical fellowships. And that makes you allow you to pursue other interests, which I think is a great opportunity if you are struggling or feeling that you're burnt out, but you don't want to go less than full time or it's actually it's just that I'm not being able to pursue my passions or what I'm really interested in more. And that's what's the root cause of my personal burnout. I think the clinical fellowships are a great opportunity. And that's one thing I think, again, could change in the organisation is I know. And it's, I think it's, again, that lack of feeling like an individual and just a generic doctor is that in portfolio. And I'm, I'm you know, deep in e-portfolio as a trainee. But you do um, all these like tick box exercises where you need to do your quality improvement. You need to do your leadership project. You need to do all these different little things. And I think it's great to get an experience of that as a F1 doctor and F12 doctor. But then why can't we say there's more of a personalised career development within the NHS? And actually, if you love doing leadership or you love doing quality improvement or you love digital health innovation, instead of having to do all these different things, why can't we really focus you as a really great asset of the organisation? I mean, medics, we you know jump through so many hoops. We're quite often quite intelligent people have, um, you know, often a bit type A. We're really like, you know, we will put effort into things if we can actually say, well, this is your individual area of expert that you want to become an expertise in will give you the resources and don't worry about doing the quality improvement we think you could be a great leader go and do all the extra stuff about that and learn how to do that and experience that and one of the I'm really interested in workplace well-being and happiness at work and job satisfaction which is like different but one of the best things about job satisfaction is feeling like you're progressing and making getting results and seeing the progress of your work and actually, if you could do that within the structured development stage and be like, I've made this amazing leadership scheme. And it's a bit like you with your medics money. It's like you can really see the results of it. And it gives you so much satisfaction instead of having to do all these different tick boxes, be more of a unique, personalized career development. I think that'd be great. Yeah, um, so much to unpick there. But you mentioned tick box a lot. And <laughs> yeah. tick box medicine is my one of my massive bugbears mm. big, for everything that you said. And, and like, I don't have a problem with appraisal. Uh, I don't mm. have a problem with CQC inspections. Uh, but I do have a problem with the way it's done. Like for appraisal, instead of making me tick all these generic boxes uh, and then filing it away, why not just get a highly experienced other doctor to come and watch me do some consultations mm. and, you know, make it personalized and individualized instead of just sending me a form and saying, you've got to file 50 of these tick boxes. And if you file those 50 tick boxes, you know, you're OK. So. Yeah. The tick box culture, I think, uh, is a big problem. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to mention is, again, observing other um, careers. So a friend of mine is a policeman and they or policewoman, should I say, they work nights, but yeah. they get their rota minimum, minimum 20 weeks in advance. OK, wow. but sometimes a year in advance, because. One thing that that's, that's crazy, like if you say, oh, to, to a load of doctors, oh, I'm getting married next year. Great. The first thing they'll say is, are you on call? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seriously, because like uh, non-doctors do not get this. The, the rotor is just so unforgiving and you are just mm. uh, you feel like rotor fodder and you yeah. say, oh, I'm getting married on this day. Could I take that day's leave? They're like, well, the rotor's not out until two days before the rotor's out. And if you're on call, you're, you've got to swap it yeah. yourself. And it's just absolutely crazy. And I, I actually think... went to a wedding um, with one of my friends who I went to uni with, and she was told she couldn't swap her rotor because she was on call at her wedding. She managed to do it. She, you know, lots of effort, got to be, got cover for, she got her own cover for her own wedding. 
And still on her wedding day, she got run up, rung up when she was, you know, putting the dress on, getting all makeup, being, why aren't you at work? <laughs> you know, and you're just like, that is not what someone needs on their wedding day. But but this is not how you retain highly experienced mm-hmm. clinicians, yeah? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the staff of the NHS, not just doctors, the staff in general of the NHS are the NHS's biggest asset. And I think mm-hmm. if people actually realised some ways that they were treated, the staff, they would be quite surprised. And another thing I've got a bugbear about is car parking. I remember when I was oh, on nights, so uh, we had to park. Well, I cycled, so I was all right, but... They used to, they, you know, used to park yeah. miles from the hospital and walk for a pretty shady area to get to work. And it's, yeah. it's just like, should should you have to walk through a shady area because the hospital doesn't provide any car parking for you? Yeah. I mean, what? And I think actually it is often the little things which make such a big difference to feeling valued, 100%. which is the number one thing to burn out. Yeah. And actually in the pandemic, I remember they scrapped parking fees and you're allowed to park for free. The morale boost of that was amazing. And then when they adapted that, everyone felt so undervalued because actually it showed that you could do it and there was the incentive there. But then actually it was taken away and just, and your value, your feeling of being valued at that point is so demoralizing. And it comes right from the top. I remember watching in one of the pandemic news conferences about Boris Johnson saying, um, oh yes, we know Scotland doctors are going to get paid a 500 pound bonus, but our doctors don't want that. <laughs> and I don't remember everyone was saying like, what? <laughs> like, we would take it. But actually what they really want is time off and recuperation. And we were okay, I'll take that. But actually that has fallen short as well. I don't see anywhere about doctors or nurses or any of the healthcare professionals getting any recuperation. It's now, right, we've got to get the work, you know, sort out the backlog, which I totally appreciate. But if you're saying we're not going to give you this to feel valued but we're going to give you that you're going to have to come through on that otherwise lots of people are going to be so demoralized yeah uh, they're also doing a great job of spinning the narrative that the pandemic caused the backlog uh check mm-hmm. the numbers the backlog yeah. was the backlogs was the worst it's ever been before the pandemic mm-hmm. so like don't don't buy that like do yeah. your own research it's absolute <laughs> nonsense but let's not get political let's move no. on because, <laughs> because i do you think did... though that the media do have a big place to stay for being demoralized particularly i would say in gps yep. um and i think that spins on to public reception as well which doesn't help definitely uh you also mentioned morale there um Ooh. and i mean i was interested that pay was i think the sixth most common reason for burnout with only 24 or 24 percent like so one in four just well under one in four i mean what do you think about pay? Because for me, uh, the issues are bigger than pay, but mm. but pay is a measure of how you value your workforce. You know, mm. if you if you uh, if you give them free parking and clap for them on the doorstep, right? But then yeah. pay pay them less than you know minimum wage, as lots yeah. of workers in the NHS probably do get after mm. you include the unpaid overtime that they do, yeah. right? You know, pay is a measure of respect. What what's our thoughts on pay? So, well, I think you can listen to your great podcast on Australian doctors to get some insight, I think, if you're not aware. And I think they, people do need to appreciate that it is a, we are a global workforce now um, and we can seek other opportunities on that note. I'm not yep. saying it's easier out there. I'm just saying it's different. And that is, a, like you say, a measure of feeling valued. Yeah. Um, and I think, like you say, it's often the intangibles. Again, comparing to other people, I know we both know accountants and actually they get all their um, sort of ICAW or other sort of um, exact professional exams paid for if you're in certain organisations, but it's not uncommon to have all your exams paid for. Whereas you're thinking, 
I, you, you've got me over a barrel here. I need to take this exam. And I just paid over a thousand pounds to take an exam. And you're thinking, well, that could have been an all-inclusive holiday for me, you know. And actually, those again, it's the intangibles that yes, it's it's the whole package. It's what we're being paid to be as a representation of our value in society, but then also having to pay lots of other additional things which make our overall take-home pay less. Um, yeah, and I think if you want the best minds to be sorting and working in the NHS, they might not want to come if they see actually working in the city, they can get paid more. And that's sort of, you know, how it is really. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, pay is a measure of how you value your workforce. Mm. If you pay them poorly or the minimum that you think you can get away with, then you're basically saying this is the minimum, you know, this is the level of respect I afford you. And Mm. I think, you know, all those intangibles that you just mentioned, I think maybe if the pay was higher, you might be tempted to, you know, gloss over them. But when yeah. it's a combination of the intangibles are going down, the workload's going up, the uh, the morale's going down, and mm. the pay's going down, you're like, well, what what is going on here? Yeah. Um, but another and thing, then actually, people leave, and yeah. then it makes it worse for the people who are staying because there are even more shortages and everything. Then it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, it's it's, it's it is difficult. Okay, so let's go. Let's go problem and solution focus. Yeah. Give me because I know last time you spoke, you said that um I got a confession, right? I have got a uh in my surgery, I've basically been locked in my surgery for the three days a week that I'm there. Uh <laughs> during the pandemic. Um, yeah. you know, just working flat out. But I've got a yoga mat and I've started I've doing got yoga yeah i went a bit budget i went for decathlon's budget model and it's uh it's on the firmer side but uh, definitely fits in with fire right because why would i buy the most expensive one but i've been (laughs) trying to do a bit like i put the phone on silent and it's going all right and that really actually helped me so give me some things because i know this is your thing that you specialize in let's help our colleagues out here give me some things that they can do so like i said at the very beginning i think if you have an organisation which supports the happiness, the health and performance of their staff, then psychological approaches that you can do at an individual level will absolutely be the cherry on the top. And I think they can make a difference even when there isn't the organisational support. But like I say, using a purely psychological solution to an organisational problem is only going to go so far. But there are these other things that are in your control and they can happen quickly. So there will make probably a bigger effect than the organizational issues which is me being cynical but that's fine so um so i don't know if people know about the concept of post-traumatic growth but there's this um research in um, positive psychology in the field of positive psychology that actually there is obviously post-traumatic stress disorder but actually a significant portion of people who go through trauma experience growth afterwards and I think resilience has got quite a bad rap because people uh, use it as something to say, well, you're just not resilient enough. So I try and avoid that term. So I've come up with this called, it's called, well, I call it pre-traumatic growth. So it's ways that we can sort of support our own well-being and build that buffer and help us thrive if we never have any traumas. But actually, if you're having traumatic experiences, helps to have that buffer to keep you um, trying to thrive and bounce back if you have any issues. And I think for me, going into work, and having that sort of in the final year medical students, you you are told this is your generic NHS path and you are going to become a generic NHS doctor. But one of the things that I think can really help you on a day to day level is taking the time to generate some self-awareness, to understand your own values and strengths. And then you can incorporate this in a day to day level about how you work and working to, within your values and towards your strengths. 
So sort of values, if you don't know them or know how to work it out, literally just sit down and think, what do I value in life? What is really important to me? Um, or you can get some coaching on it, some of the great coaches about how to get your values. Or you can do, it's a bit more prescriptive, um, prescriptive, but you can actually find lists of values and you can just pick which ones that you look. So for example, my own values, family happiness, nature, growth, knowledge, health. And then I can work those into my day-to-day -day level. And I feel like I'm succeeding and getting that job satisfaction from succeeding and growing in these areas. If you're not really sure what you value or you're not really sure what makes you happy, there's this great book on emotional intelligence by Mark Brackett called Permission to Feel. And he has this app, which is 79p, I think it was when I bought it, called Mood Meter. And it just makes you, it gives you so many more so many more words for emotions. But you can actually track how you're feeling when you're feeling and log what you're doing. And I think if everyone just did that for about a month, if you really didn't understand yourself or what makes you happy, you can actually see what you're doing when you're happy and just do more of that and try maybe see if you can get some of the stuff that you're not so happy out of your life. And I think that can help. And again, strengths. So when you work towards your strengths, I think generally feeling good at something makes you feel better at and you know you, you get that reward and that feeling good and that self-esteem by doing something that you're good at and the VIA character institute you can just google that has a really great free character strength test and I've done that a few times and at the moment my top strengths are love love of learning appreciation of beauty and excellence prudence and kindness and I think you know kindness is such a simple thing and again um in my own practice, trying to you know support workplace well-being, just doing more gratitude of each other because again, that feeling valued is the highest um, reason why people are feeling burnt out. And actually, if you're not getting it from the top, why don't you just do it as a team? And I was listening to a TED talk on workplace well-being, and there was this great thing where there was this really demoralised team, and the new uh, nurses came in, and it was in. Um, there was a Danish speaker and they had this thing called the order of the elephant being like the top thing you can get from um you know um their country as service and they just made this little tiny like elephant key ring and they give it to someone to say thank you so much for doing this and they write it in a book they get to keep it for a couple of days and then they can pass it on and it's documented what they did and that just boosted morale so much and those little tiny things again it's the small things that make such a difference um, so knowing your own values and strengths, but then incorporating that in a day to day thing. So if it is something that you, you really appreciate kindness, can't you just do something within your own practice, your own team that actually demonstrates that on a day to day? Oh, I love it. I love it. I, I just love that idea. I think one thing that's really helped me is what you said straight at the start is find out what makes you happy. And you gave oh. some great suggestions there to find out. But once you find out what makes you happy, uh, and what drives you, mm -hmm. then you can do something about it. And yes. uh, newsflash, if working 150 hours a week as a doctor with a rotor mm -hmm. one week in advance doesn't make you happy, there are other options are available. So um, yeah. And I think that's going to be a big problem for the NHS going forward because yeah. the more people who do what we're doing, working less in the NHS, mm -hmm. the, the bigger the problem. But yeah, finding out what makes you happy and having the strength of character to realize that 
you know, that is what you want uh, yes. and not follow the herd because there's a lot of what I call jam tomorrow medicine. Like yes, you go, so you go to med school, it'll be hard, mm-hmm. but then you'll be a doctor. You get to F1, you're like, this is the hardest job I've ever done. They're like, oh, don't worry, F2 is easier. You get to F2, it's <laughs> like F2 ain't easier. Then yeah. suddenly you're the med reg with three bleeps on your hip and the whole hospital to run. And, and you're just suddenly you're trapped or yeah. seemingly trapped in this thing. Like, And the strength of character to stop, say stop and get out of that. Mm-hmm. It's hard, but I think it's more people hard. are doing it. You know, more I people hard yeah and more people are doing it and I think one of the biggest reasons um why people struggle with taking a step back or even going the next step and changing career is the perception of their loved ones for them doing that and I am so lucky that my family have been so supportive for all the changes that I've made in terms of you know doing less than full-time interested in a few other things but I remember it just what you said really resonated with me because I remember one of the conversations I had with my dad about you know, why I wanted to go to less than full time. And I was like, I need to be happy now. I don't need to be told that, it, you know, I, this many years, that many years, I need to live for now. And that we only have the present. You don't know what's going to happen later. And actually, yeah, I think living for now is such an important thing. And another thing which you said, which I think really resonated is, um, van- and going back to the value thing, do you value monetary affluence or do you value time affluence and I think time affluence is something we don't consider often enough and actually if it's something that sounds interesting to you um, Elizabeth Dunn did an amazing TED talk and then a TED talk interview um, and talking about you know time affluence and this is reflected in the study that we've sort of focused our talk on is that 88% of millennials were willing to take a £10,000 pay cut or less for less hours of work well if you're willing to do that it takes effort. I can tell you for going less than full time, particularly not having a child or being pregnant, it does take work to get that. But if it's going to make you happy, go for it. And it's part of that boundary setting that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, definitely. I think that's where linking it a bit, bit back to fire. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like fire because, yeah, I've realized the more money that I have, that what exactly what you said the the most valuable thing to me is not money it's my time hence mm. i only work in the nhs three days a week i mean i am full-time on medics money so don't worry about that i'm not slacking <laughs> off uh but uh yeah i think it's uh it's you know getting to that financial position where you can only work three days a week mm. as a doctor it takes a tremendous amount of work and sacrifice. It doesn't come easy. You know, there's been no handouts or inheritance for me. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's just, I've spent less than I earned. I don't drive flashy cars. I yeah. don't have a particularly flashy house. I don't have a high consumption lifestyle. Uh, I've invested uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, but it's just about valuing. I would rather take my kids to school two days mm-hmm. a week than drive a brand new car. Is yeah. that's just a choice that I've made. And I'm not saying everyone wants to make that choice, but all I would say is that if you're stuck on that hamster wheel of driving a new car, working hundred hours a week, waiting for your next postgraduate exam so you can get that next step on the ladder, just ask yourself what Emma just said, which is, is it making you happy like day to day? And if it's not, maybe think about making a change. Mm. Awesome. Okay. Uh, any more top tips? Uh, last time, I think we've got to go back over this because your, your box breathing thing as well. Yeah. I love it. Let's just go over that because that's also really yeah. helped me when I've like, yeah. when I'm on a duty doc today as an on-call GP and there's a hundred patients on the screen, 300 scripts to be signed. Someone's on the phone with an emergency mm-hmm. I start, I actually do a bit of box breathing and it doesn't make the list go away, but it just helps me to stop, get Mm. the adrenaline down and be like, right, what's, what actually need to do and what can wait? Yeah. So, I mean, when you're in that fight or flight stress response, 
there's some really interesting research that actually your frontal lobes, your prefrontal cortex, the activity of it is reduced and you go into, you use your more primitive areas of your brain and your IQ can actually drop 20, 20 points, which actually, if you're average, can put you into a learning disability. So this is not just good for us. It's actually good for the patients we are, you know, treating. You, you kind of want all your resources and faculties on board. And breathing is really connected to our emotions in a bi-directional relationship. So when we're breathing in a fast and shallow way, that sends signals to our bodies that there's a threat and that activates our sympathetic nervous system. Whereas actually, if we slow down our breath and use more deep, controlled breathing, then that activates more the parasympathetic nervous system and reduces um, the dominance of the sympathetic nervous system. And what I love about breathing is that happens in such a quick to, like way. I mean, you could probably say this from doing it on, the, on your duty days. And I remember walking around with bleeps going off in hospitals, feeling very stressed and just going, no, I'm just going to do some calm, like breathing. And no one knows you're doing it, which is great. And the results happen so quickly because it is one of our amazing, I just find it fascinating. We have this, you know, power within us that actually, if you do conscious breathing with something that <clears throat> often is, totally unconscious and we're not even thinking about it and take for granted that we can breathe but actually if we tune into it consciously breathe it has such power over our emotions and how we're feeling and yet it's so simple so yeah box breathing like you say that's when if you clean the picture in your mind or use a window frame or whatever um a square in your mind and then go up the left hand side of the square inhaling for four slow seconds so one and two and three and four and then you go hold your breath along the top um, of the box and then exhale ideally through your nose and inhale through your nose as well on the um going down exhaling on the right hand side of the box and then you um hold again going across the bottom of the box and actually um i've done a youtube video of this so i can send it to your people because it's much easier to do it with someone than just to describe yeah, yeah. the podcast um yeah. And I do. I send that to patients as well because I mean it's great in terms of stress management. Yeah. And that's just one of the simple, um, simple techniques. There are many of them. So there's something called coherence breathing as well, which is um, ideal for heart rate variability. I'm not sure if that's something people are familiar with, but that's just minute beat to beat variations in the heart, and it is a marker of autonomic resilience within the system um, and just being ready to um react to anything and that's there because of the um interaction between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system the sympathetic nervous system on the um inhale is driving the heart rate up and then on the exhale the parasympathetic nervous system is driving the heart rate down and the interrelation with that creates very small differences in the beat to beat variation of the uh, of the heart and basically the rr interval as we're medics you know <laughs> that's like change um, and actually coherence breathing, which is sort of an inhale for five and an exhale for five, is one of the best ways to support that. And that's great if you don't want to go into a real like sloppy parasympathetic state. But you still want, say, for example, if you're going to do a presentation and you're slightly nervous about it, but you still want to be um, on point. That's a great breathwork strategy to do. So, yeah, I'm I'm all for breathwork and I think it can make such a big difference. And actually, I often focus on the ways that are great to reduce stress. But actually, if you for example, want to feel alert, you can use it for that as well. Yeah, I mean, I love recording this podcast because I get to speak to really interesting people that expand mm. expand my mind like this. And I was a massive skeptic about uh, box breathing and <laughs> how doing a bit of yoga in my room was going to help me. But 
Honestly, after our last podcast, those are two things which I really took from it. And I'm being absolutely shocked at the response. I mean, I mentioned I cycle to work and I already know the power of exercise to reduce stress, which is why I cycle to work. Like I don't enjoy cycling in the rain and the cold, but I just feel better when I do it for some reason. But box breathing and just having like a 10 minute, even if I just do a 10 minute stretch, uh, you know, most days I eat lunch at the desk, the phone's going off all the time. And it's just 10 minutes where I just put the phone on mute shut the door uh, and it's really helped me so i was a skeptic i'm now a believer i wasn't okay i wasn't a skeptic i just no one had ever taught me it so you the first time you said it was like oh that sounds cool i might try it and yeah it's good okay um all right we better wrap up here and um it's been so good to talk about well-being and, and burnout and it's really important that we talk about that but I want to just quickly get, you know, we said like we both work full time, less than full time. Okay. And people are probably sing, sat there thinking, well, I can't afford to work less than full time. These two are so lucky, right? Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't luck. It's hard work and uh, fire basically. But give me your top fire tips because really, right? If you want to go less than full time, unless you're loaded, right? Happy days for you. But mm-hmm. most people aren't loaded. You're going to take a pay cut and that means you've got to clean up your finances and you're going to make some tough financial choices. So you've made those choices. Mm. I've made those choices as well. Give me your top tips for, you know, enabling less than full time working like you. Um, So I would say sit down and work out your finances and work out how much money is going out of your account each month with the things that you can't change. So, well. You can change mortgage, but ultimately, unless you change your mortgage, which is quite a hard thing to do, that is your outgoings. So things that you spend on mortgage, how much you eat, food, what, and and not all the little extras like Netflix and going out for dinner and alcohol and all that stuff. Work out how much is going out and work out what you have left. Um, and then work out how much value to you is spending the money on other things compared to actually living less than full time um, working less than full time and then save proactively invest either in stocks and shares or try and save a deposit to be able to um, uh, invest in property do something with your money so it grows and I know we talked about compound interest in the last time so I won't go back to that and you can listen to those podcasts but do something with your money so it's not just sitting make your money work for you um and I think if I'm just keeping it short the other thing which I think is so important which I think we we did touch on last time as well is if you're in a relationship having a really deep and honest conversation about your values with that person so that you can be in it together because that makes a whole world of difference having that support and understanding and know that you might be saving half your take-home pay a month or more crucial absolutely crucial that last tip yeah definitely you've got to be on the same page okay emma that was amazing uh i love it um thank you so much for your time i know you've got to get off to uh, work now ironically um if people are liking what they hear and you mentioned your instagram uh where's the best place to hear more yeah so i am dr emma thurston on instagram um i'm hang out there slightly less than i used to i'm on linkedin more so dr emma thurston um and um i also have my company website healthy and wellness which you can check me out there and it's got a contact page for an email address there it's a, your company page. What's your URL? Uh, Healthyandwellness.co.uk. I can ping you it. So Perfect. I'll drop in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, such a pleasure to catch up with you and get your insights on this super interesting subject. Thank you so much for your time. I really look okay. forward to welcoming you on the podcast in due course. Yeah.
Okay, Take well, care. it was great to speak to you again. Take care.